Welcome to Jason and the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Chris Wunderlich. And we are talking about Southland Tales from 2006, directed by Richard Kelly, starring, among many other people, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Sean William Scott, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Mandy Moore, John Lovitz, Justin Timberlake is amazing in this, Christopher Lambert, uh, John Larroquette, Janine Garofalo's in it, depending on which version you see. Uh, it is quite a film. Miranda Richardson, Kevin Smith. I could go on and on. Uh, Chris, I know you're a big fan of this movie. I hadn't watched it before we started chatting about doing this pod. And I have to admit, I am a little torn about this movie. On one hand, I thought it's this explosion of creativity. So much stuff thrown at the wall. And it all kind of fits together. It's very kind of strange, interlocking storyline. Feels like a Philip K. Dick story come to life. On the other hand, it's kind of a mess. <laughs> and it asks a hell of a lot out of a viewer. Oh, so, yeah. Should I love it or hate it, Chris? Well, I think the first question is, did you enjoy your time with it? I'm the kind of person who loves a movie that just kind of has its own internal momentum okay which takes its own pace and which is kind of reflects a clear directoral approach to things and this is clearly an auteurist movie and it clearly takes its own direction and it is fun as hell okay so okay. yeah i i liked it as i was watching it and the more i think about it, the more i'm not sure i liked it oh, okay see this is this is definitely my kind of movie uh where you watch it and it tells you a lot and it keeps your brain working and you have to shove all these little facts in your brain to keep up with it but at the same time it's entertaining you completely it's not just talking heads it's not just where's the story going what's happening this movie was like if you go in it completely cold not knowing what to expect and think like oh look at that movie poster this looks like something from the 2000s era. Uh, I think it will really surprise you, not just with how weird it is, but how funny it is too. Mm -hmm. I was not expecting to laugh my head off uh, most of the movie. And maybe that's why I enjoyed it so much. It's a big out of left field, just like you, you don't know what's going to happen on screen. And when something does happen, the audacity of it just left me laughing um and not in a bad way either because this was meant to be a comedy i was debating whether it's a comedy or a drama or sci-fi and i think it just kind of falls into this interesting kind of netherworld that very few movies are actually in trying to categorize it uh, just doesn't make sense yeah uh the wikipedia page calls it a dystopian comedy thriller and that sounds like nonsense, but it's actually like the perfect description of this, I think. So the movie starts out with a 4th of July party in Amarillo, Texas. Yeah, and it starts out very it's realistic. A, it, it's such an eerie beginning because you just see ordinary people having a nice barbecue, bouncy houses and kids running around with cameras. And I'm sitting there just wondering where this is going to go. And all of a sudden... There's a nuclear explosion and it's like, oh shit, this is on. Yeah, it, it has that opening that uh, I've only seen this movie twice. I watched it for the first time last year and then I spent a year trying to convince other people to watch it unsuccessfully um, because it's, it's a tough sell. Mm -hmm. But I, I remembered so much of it except for that opening. As soon as that opening hit, I thought, I don't remember this one bit and it was really effective both times because it's completely unlike any other part of the movie but it really grounds it in a sense of there's the real world that we live in that makes sense to us and then there's this world that the director creates in this movie that is almost like a dark mirror image of it and it, it shows us very clearly like look at home video the, this could be your family playing with squirt guns and eating hamburgers and then when the movie starts, it's this is not your world. 
but you do recognize it, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I've literally been to some of the places in Venice, California, where the movies set. So it, it hit me particularly realistically. I mean, I've walked on that beach. Uh, I think we've, we've literally gone into a couple of the shops that are seen there. So it, it has a level of spookiness to it. And of course, it all takes place around a presidential election and people attempting to kind of game the system. Um, the who is the who is a little different, although that's also really interesting because it's kind of a set of underground hackers who believe that the election is going to be a big fraud. That struck me really surprisingly. Watching it now probably didn't hit anybody. Well, wouldn't have hit anybody until earlier this year, in the same way. Yeah, I mean, again, there's so many threads in this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, it just it just jams so much uh, i watched the 160 minute version that has a little more footage than the theatrical release i think and uh even then there's a whole additional characters and things that are just crammed in um i think that's that's one of the big things that turned people off this movie was and one of the reasons i thought if anyone's going to watch it it could be you and I want to take this at a bit of a comic book reading perspective, uh, because I think this is perfect for people like me and you who might have gone to a comic book store, picked up a random issue, read it, and been completely in the middle of a storyline. You got to pick up on the context clues. You know, this is like if I told you that there's a great alternative history story, like a great Elseworlds tale that came out in 2005, and it's by an amazing writer, an amazing artist, and it's 10 issues long, and you have to read it. You're going to love it, but you're never going to find the first two issues. Mm -hmm. you just got to pick up on issue three and read it, and trust me, you'll love it. Because that's an important part of this movie is it starts on chapter four. Yeah, which is a very strange way to begin a movie. Yeah, you have to trust that the filmmaker is going to carry you along with his enthusiasm and allow yourself to feel lost for the vast majority of the movie and just take it in as something that's going to slowly reveal itself because he's not going to take the time to really explain it. it even when stuff is explained, honestly, it, the, the explanation is secondary to the experience you have watching it anyway, which is kind of how it should be regardless. You know, uh, this this in some ways is filmmaking is pure filmmaking or filmmaking is pure creativity kind of unfettered by the needs of a tight narrative now, the narrative's there and you can you can find it if you dig deep i i've got the arrow blu-ray that includes director commentary and he connects a lot of the pieces which are explained a lot more in the graphic novels but i think you can enjoy this movie just on the surface level of just saying wow these these stories come together in interesting ways and the visuals are spectacular yeah i think that's that's a big part of the appeal is that you can enjoy it just by sitting back and watching it and you know someone pops up like you're watching the movie and will sasso appears on screen i i thought that was hilarious i don't know what will sasso is doing in this movie and there's wallace sean and curtis armstrong all these people are appearing doing weird things and you can just sit back and, and kind of let the experience wash over you. Uh, but watching it a second time, I was really surprised by how much of the story was actually there. Because this is the kind of movie you watch and then immediately say, I got to go read online about what the heck I just saw because someone can explain it to me. And watching it a second time, it's sort of, wow, they, you know, there's a lot to be explained. There are a lot of story pieces that are missing. Uh, and the director will admit to that too. I think he called this an unfinished film. Yeah. Uh, but when you do watch it and try to fit all those facts into your head as you go along, it's surprising how much of it you can connect on your own. And maybe it's distracting that it's so enjoyable. I don't know. So to your comic analogy, I, I've been thinking about that. This is a little bit like starting to read Watchmen with issue four. The wheels are in <laughs> yeah. motion. There's six or seven different plots all happening in, in parallel with each other. They connect a bit, but you have to kind of allow them to connect a bit, but you can also enjoy the artfulness and the beauty of it because uh, the creator is going to 
to pull everything together. Because as you said, it, it's just so enjoyable. I mean, uh, Justin Timberlake, for example, with his big scar and his kind of Bible thumping slash survival attitude is like a scene stealer. Oh, he would be a scene stealer if everyone else wasn't stealing the scenes also. <laughs> That's just it. There's just so many, so many interesting roles in this movie and so many interesting actors. Um, but yeah, just to just to hone in on the Justin Timberlake character a bit because he's sort of important as the, the all-seeing eye, the narrator, the witness, the events that happen here, right? Um, I read, yeah, and I, I think tried not the, to read much. I, I think he's the first character we see after the explosion. And then yeah. um, in the movie release, there's a, a, a montage that shows what happened. And then he's our first character we see on the beach there. Sorry, keep going. Well, like everyone in this movie, he's playing a version of himself. And again, to the comics analogy, this is like picking up maybe like an Age of Apocalypse or you know, not to inside baseball too much, but you know, when you pick <laughs> up a comic and it's like, oh, this is an alternate reality. So you're going to know all the characters, but they have completely different roles. Mm -hmm. And that's what this movie is because all of the actors are playing sort of versions of themselves. And if you look at the cast, I mean, these are all people in the prime of their careers that you see The Rock and you see Sean William Scott, you see Sarah Michelle Gellar, Justin Timberlake, Mandy Moore, it goes on and on. And you already have this idea of who they are. They're not casting these actors to play characters. They're casting these actors to play strange, twisted versions of themselves. Yeah. And Justin Timberlake is probably the coolest example of that because it's and again, I tried not to read too much, but I did find a little thing that he was a take on, you know, Elvis getting drafted, where it's the pop star in this sort of war-torn role, except, uh, you know, it's post 9-11 and it's Iraq and it's sort of a little more truthful with, yeah, this destroys people. So here's mm -hmm. Justin Timberlake, scarred, destroyed, screwed up. In many ways, Justin Timberlake is still love, but terrifying, you know? Yeah, and we see his inner life with the, well, a lot of people's favorite scene is when he's dancing to all the things that I've done by the killers, uh, which is just the anti-music video. Yeah, the anti-music video. The dancers are amazing in that anti-music yeah. video. Uh, but do you really see like his, his kind of tortured life that he's, li that he's living where he feels very uh, trapped in his own mind or his own reality? Yeah, I mean... That's that's probably the most famous scene of the movie, right? Is this this uh, you couldn't pick a more two thousands band, a more perfect <laughs> song to encapsulate the era. And again, I think that's the biggest strength of this movie is it takes this era and all these fears and anxieties, and it just squeezes them into a little ball and gives them to you in movie form. And watching Justin Timberlake dance to this this big hit song. Uh, about soldiers and souls which are huge themes in the movie and just drinking beer and not really caring he's he's the anti-justin timberlake he's not dancing he's mm -hmm. not smiling most of the time um you know that's another thing this movie is about the end of the world so this is justin timberlake being justin timberlake knowing that the end of the world is in a few days and knowing what the world was like uh, in this post 9-11 Iraq war nonsense and just sort of saying I'm drinking beer and doing drugs and letting my mind fly away because what else can you do I think that's a tension a lot of the characters are feeling in this movie there's a oh, lot yeah. of marijuana use uh, at a time marijuana was still mostly illegal you know the whole storyline with the the Marxist rebels in Venice right they're always smoking and drinking, right? Nora Dunn's always got a, a beer. That she's always downing some beers. And her friend is always smoking pot. And uh, they're, they're trying to escape at the same time. They're trying to kind of change the world. And it really feels like this is the tension uh, I remember feeling at that time too. Like we have to be engaged in the world post 9-11, but the world is so fucked up that I just want to escape it. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I, I think, is interesting that, um, you know, everyone's anxiety was, uh, oh, no, this, this, these terrorism acts and such is going to give the government such power that big, 
big brother is going to you know become a reality that we're all going to be trapped in this cage of government and so controlled uh so they really took that idea and ran with it having you know justin timberlake literally sit on a giant i don't know what he calls recoilless rifle posted guns aiming at the people on the beach uh in the name of protection right uh-huh and he kills the woman who works for the government agency who is actually uh, like almost a spy in the house of the government talking to Dwayne Johnson about his actual fate, which has something to do with his movie script. It all gets so fascinatingly tangled and weird when you start to, to delve into that whole piece of it. Yeah, that's, well, again, that's where the second viewing uh, comes in real handy because, and I mean, we're going to spoil this whole movie. That's the nature of it, right? What we have to. But when you watch it and you know that The Rock and Sean William Scott are both playing like time displaced clones <laughs> and you see that from the beginning of the movie, when you know that going into it, the whole movie changes in front of your eyes. It's no mm -hmm. longer what, 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 what. It's, oh, this guy's freaking out because he is the version of himself that exists 69 minutes into the future. Uh, so that explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and that like the whole all the stuff with sean william scott and roland and ronald taverner and all, yeah. all that stuff just didn't quite track for me at all the first time and then yeah i think i'm slowly starting to puzzle it out after a second watch but there's a lot more there than i think i even got in the second watch oh man yeah no watching that watching the whole sean william scott plot line because throughout most of the movie they convince you that he is one character that has a twin brother mm -hmm. and they spend most of the movie kind of looking for each other uh, and getting knocked out constantly. Uh, but when you go in there knowing that one of them is like that, they share the same soul as the movie puts it. And that one of them is just another version from a little bit into the future. Then, you know, the very first scene you see with Sean William Scott, he's waving his arm in front of the mirror and his reflection is delayed. And he's confused and we think oh this must be something about drugs or something but really it's because he is from the future he is mm -hmm. himself but you know that, that that's something richard kelly i think was really good at that people could not accept was that he would put these really like hard science fiction things like the fourth dimension and quantum entanglement into these stories that people uh, we're kind of busy concentrating on other things. Yeah. Like, have you seen Donnie Darko? Yeah, it's been a few years since I saw Donnie Darko. Yeah, it's a really enjoyable movie. And it's it's almost like a, a Carrie-esque horror, right? Where it's like this kid and these strange things happening. And, you know, the, there's a lot of great plot lines, great atmosphere and everything. But when you get to the heart of that movie, it's like, oh, it's about alternate timelines. And uh, like, it's a really hard science fiction movie. Mm -hmm. that doesn't make any sense unless you really buy into those hard science fiction plot threads and that's the big thing with this movie too but this movie has such a heaping sense of absurdity on top of everything else that's oh, what yeah. puts it in a different level from donnie darko to me I'm not sure it's a better movie or worse movie it's just a very different movie oh yeah donnie darko is very much uh you know maybe it had a few moments you'd giggle at but it wasn't a comedy this movie was a, like you could tell everyone was having fun. And there are some things that are just so absurd, you can't help but laugh. Well, the Sarah Michelle Geller character, for example, who's a porn star who goes straight, but has a, has a talk show where it's all porny. Uh, she dresses in these crazy costumes, but she's also selling energy drinks. And uh, <laughs> like, like her whole, the whole character is just so, there's just all this random stuff thrown at the character and all is just so wonderful. There's like, she's just so complicated and weird. Yeah. And I think that's something that really helps seeing this movie so many years after it was made is we can look back and go, Oh man, do you remember when reality TV was like this? Uh -huh. Do you remember when celebrities, when, you know, you could get famous from having, you know, the released sex tape was a big thing. Like why is Paris Hilton the celebrity? because you know she had the tape and then she had some shows where she was just showcasing how ditzy she was and this was like 
the American culture of the time. And it's very bizarre to think about, but when you see it on screen in a fictional version of Sarah Michelle Gellar, it's like, wow, that was really what was going on. This actually is not so far from the reality that did exist then. Yeah, Kelly talks in the commentary about how um, this is the Keller, uh, the Geller character was directly based on Paris Hilton, and sense. specifically the McCain campaign's reaction to Paris Hilton, how were they, how they were using her in campaign ads. But I actually found myself, especially by the end with the beautiful dance scene in the Zeppelin, <laughs> liking Sarah, Mich the Sarah Michelle Geller, Geller character, for all her apparent dumbness this is a pretty first of all it's a she's a character who takes action to change her life secondly she's a character who has friends and connections and is involved in the world third of all she's just a hell of a lot of fun to watch yeah yeah she's very good and uh also very uh she has a surprising heart to her yeah uh, <laughs> yeah like she she deeply cares about and again, I can't, I can't remember any of the characters' names because there's, you know, 50 of them. But <laughs> The Rock, she deeply cares about The Rock, even though we don't really get to see how they meet or anything. Boxer Santeros. Uh, slash Jericho Kane. Slash Jericho, the names in this movie. The names are wild. But yeah, uh, but she, genuinely, wild. she genuinely loves Boxer. Yeah, and, and uh, again, that leads to a, a scene in the movie where she thinks she's stealing something on his behalf, something that will save him and save his credibility. I guess we haven't discussed it, but boxer Dwayne The Rock Johnson plays a celebrity. He plays himself, basically, a big movie star, and he's got a bit of a memory problem. So he winds up with Sarah Michelle Gellar, the porn star, and they have a bit of a relationship. We don't really see how that starts, but they write a screenplay together. Everyone's trying to blackmail Boxer Santeros because of many reasons. But again, yeah, Sarah Michelle Gellar thinks she's stealing this tape for him. And she thinks she'll, she'll give it to the other side. You know, she's stealing it from the Marxists. She'll give it to the government. This will clear his name or, or something. Yeah, um, and it leads to a big shootout. And it's one of those things that you can just watch. And, and you see John Lovitz running around with blonde hair shooting a pistol at people and Sherry O'Terry thinking she can take on a, a gigantic cannon. And it's such a weird, enjoyable scene, but there's like, there is a story there. And if you can just, you know, <laughs> kind of distance yourself from all the fun that's being had, mm -hmm. it's like, wow, Sarah Michelle Gellar has a, a complex character. She's not a ditz running around. She's trying to do something for the, the love of this person she knows. She's not some hooker with a heart of gold cliche she is yeah she's a really complex character who uh has a lot going on i thought dwayne johnson boxer santeros was a fascinating character because <laughs> he's yes. both cast against type and totally cast on type yeah well that's that's just it right he's very much playing the rock but, and again, if you're watching this on second viewing, you understand he is a time-displaced version of himself. Mm -hmm. So he's constantly twiddling his fingers and looking around and acting like a total weirdo. Yeah, and, and when you see that on screen, you're thinking, oh, this, you know, if you come into this with a closed mind, you're thinking, what a stupid thing I'm seeing. Why is The Rock to, like, what a stupid movie. But then you realize, oh, this is, some weird fourth dimensional version of the rock who can't handle his time and place here and is probably seeing through time during these scenes where he's freaking out and talking to himself and uh yeah he's the only character that kind of knows what's going to happen but doesn't realize it i just liked watching him not be the guy who's the total action hero at the center yeah. of everything and having the answers to, to all the problems. I really enjoyed just seeing him as this befuddled kind of, he, he almost <laughs> has this childish quality to him in this oh, movie. very much. Where yes. he, he's like a little kid who's kind of lost and trying to make his way in the world. There's this innocence to Boxer Santeros that 
I thought was so against type for him. Oh, and that that's just it. I think the point is that all of these actors are playing against type mm -hmm. hard. Like, you know, The Rock shows up and you expect him to be this big action hero. And he's the one that's being used by everyone else. And he doesn't have a clue what's going to happen next or who's on his side or what to do. He's always getting, you know, knocked out and stuff as well. Right. And if anything, like, he's got some of the funniest lines in the movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas, keep going. Yeah, I mean, Sean William Scott, right? At this time, oh, hey, it's Stifler, you know, this guy's hilarious, American Pie, whatever. Uh, his character is played completely straight. He's the opposite of what you expect. And he's surprisingly good as a dramatic actor. Yeah, as, as two, two characters, too, who are different from each other. And he's, he's always playing a couple different games at once because of that. The, the whole scenes where they're where trying to set up the fake murder as a way of framing the corrupt cops, uh, as a way of subverting <laughs> the presidential election. Like, it, I was, uh, again, this is the second time I had to, I actually was able to figure out what the motivations were and what he was trying to do. And the whole way he handles that is so just, I don't even know what the word is. Uh, so well done. <laughs> it, it That's just it. Yeah, there's, there's so much that's going on on the page and in the director's mind that when it happens on screen, you watch it and you accept it and you try to figure it out. And you realize, you know, the information you need is probably there, but it's still just befuddling. It's just bonkers what's happening. <laughs> that's mentioning that scene that the faked murder is again, just one of the most enjoyable parts of this movie where they have Amy Poehler and Wood Harris, mm -hmm. who, I mean, so it's just as soon as Wood Harris appears on screen, having just watched The Wire, I couldn't do anything but laugh because uh -huh. he's on screen yelling at Amy Poehler in just this out of left field, completely hilarious scene. And then John Lovitz shows up acting totally straight faced, totally a villain. There's no jokes coming from John Lovitz, even though he's probably the funniest guy in the room. And it's just bizarre. And you can't help but laugh. And then when you look at it again, you can't help but realize this is some brilliant plotting. I was just too busy laughing to realize. <laughs> well, I guess there's a whole cut subplot about John Lovitz and Sherry Arteri and they're, they're, uh, he's madly in love with her and that's why he's so attached to her and all the scenes subsequent to that too. Like that yeah. character has a nice twist and turn also to him. Yeah, they, they touch on that story a little bit, but again, uh, it doesn't help that this movie has so many plots and so many characters and so many high concepts that when you have a character almost as straightforward as Sherry O'Terry's character, where she's, you know, just rebellion, revolution, I'm I'm the neo-Marxist and I'm head of this organization. You think you understand her, and then they give her a bunch of plot twists. Mm -hmm. And you, you gotta just kind of accept it, go for the ride. And again, it's brilliant but this movie is only two and a half hours long. It's not five hours. It's not a mini series. So if things happen with characters, you need to realize there's stuff you're not seeing. Do you think that works in the, to the benefit of the movie or do you think it would have actually been a better five hour TV series? Oh, I, I love it in this format because to me, every little twist and turn, every little absurd revelation was just like, it made me laugh. And then I was impressed, you know, it was like, this is happening. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. And then oh, that is, that I want to see where that goes now. You know, it's silly because, and that's the thing, you got to keep accepting that this is a comedy. Mm -hmm. you, you can't get too distracted by this being stupid because yeah, if you're laughing, they wanted you to laugh. Uh, and then, yeah, you, you, just, you enjoy it on that level and it, it comes at you so fast that I think if they had time to spread it out in like a TV series and develop it, it might be like, oh yeah, that plot line was really interesting. Uh, they could have developed it more, you know, they, they could have had a whole episode about that. But this way it's just sort of, nope, here it is, accept it. It's weird, move on. My favorite thing I heard about the difference between long form TV and movies recently was a comparison that said, TV shows are like novels. Movies are like poems. Okay. 
And this is definitely a movie where, I don't know, I don't want to get totally pretentious, but it's like the it's wasteland or something, right? <laughs> because it, every line means something. And every moment means something because it's just all piled on top of each other. Well, that's just it. I mean, things are happening on screen that you're trying to understand. And then you hear Justin Timberlake's voice over it saying things straight out of the book of Revelation. And half your brain says, just ignore it. What's happening on screen? The other half of your brain is saying, you know, okay, wait, uh, is he telling us something we need to pay attention to? Is yeah. this going to pay off later? <laughs> and it does. Well, it's almost like there's three tracks going on here. There's the visual track, there's the audio track, and then there's your mind kind of trying to put all the pieces together <laughs> all at the same time. And leaves, yeah. leaves you on a first watch in a state of deep confusion. There's comments on letterbox about people watching the movie 30 times and really getting things out of it after the 30th time and i <laughs> do still see that i imagine you would yeah because even after being determined that i would understand it on the second viewing there are still scenes that i thought there's still something missing here i don't know what's going on that kevin smith did you catch kevin smith in this movie well i didn't until i <laughs> until I watched the commentary and I learned that was Kevin Smith in a beard with uh, a, as a general whose legs have been cut off. Yeah, he's uh, rolling around in a wheelchair, unrecognizable, and talking to Janine Garofalo about Dungeons and Dragons moves. Right. Which, again, that, that I know there is something going on there and you pick up enough clues to kind of figure out their motivations, but I don't know what's going on. Yeah. And I think that's part of why it's better as a movie than it would have been as a TV show, because we want to we want to be lost. We want to not know what the motivations are, and it's formulated in that way. It certainly alienated some of the reviewers, especially at the time. The canned version was, was notoriously booed, and was yeah. an enormous bomb when it first played. Yeah, oh, I mean, I can see being turned. I think if you come into this thinking it's one thing and then you watch it and everything on screen is telling you like this is going to be a serious movie or this is going to be a uh, if it's something you're not expecting you might think oh boy the rock is an awful actor in this movie sarah michelle geller is an awful actor why is john le Raquette in this movie getting a taser to his balls <laughs> that doesn't that's not the movie i wanted to see right like this could very easily be the thing that you just don't accept everything that comes at you. And I can see why you would hate it. I've never yeah. showed this movie to my wife for a reason. <laughs> Larry Kett, by the way, is amazing in this movie. So I think in a movie actor. full of great actors, there's something about the quality of his performance. He just looks so perfectly self-assured as the vice presidential candidate. To me, like he is the best character actor in every scene he's in. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's just it each actor gets a chance to steal a scene and yeah john larroquette is, is just great amongst them i'm a big night court fan too so you're watching a movie and you see sarah michelle geller in the rock and you understand and then why is why does john larroquette show up it doesn't make a lot of sense but he's so good mm -hmm. i mean wallace sean and curtis armstrong as two crazy german scientists without german accents by the way just being Curtis Armstrong and Wallace Shawn, just being total weirdos. Uh, you could you could definitely see the heavy David Lynch influence in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. So go back to the, the reviews and we, could, we should talk about Lynch in a minute. Yeah. Ebert says, I admire Kelly's free spirit. He's a cinematic anarchist. The problem is he's throwing bombs at his own work. He apparently has no sympathy at all for an audience unable to understand his plot. And every play every scene plays like something that was dreamed up with little concern of what came before or after. It's like the third day of a pitch session on speed. Oh, and I think what you're, it's exactly what you're talking about, which is first impression versus taking the time to rewatch it. But I'll make another point about this too. And this is where Lynch comes in. And I'll compare it to a Lynch movie you can choose any Lynch movie with a large cast <laughs> yeah. and compare it to two other movies that, that I adore, which are Nashville ah. and Magnolia. 
which is another L.A. movie, too. Yeah. Both of those movies are enormous, sprawling films with three dozen characters in them who all have these complicated storylines. And the movie, uh, the movies kind of take these unexpected, strange turns to them. All three movies are operatic, too. So you could say they're of a piece. Nashville is maybe a comedy. Nashville is still a mystery to me in some ways. Magnolia is a tragedy. Yeah. This movie is a comedy. I would argue that those two movies work better in bringing the audience along at in a first watch and dwell on uh, equally deep metaphysical subjects in ways that kind of work better on an early watching. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about two movies that are very good and uh, Nashville is very viewer friendly. Um, I mean, the audio is a little tough to wrestle with, right? Altman's signature, everyone talking at once style. But again, you can watch Nashville, enjoy it, understand what happened, and then dig a little deeper if you want. Magnolia, same idea, right? You watch it. There's things on some things on screen you won't understand the first time, but there's nothing frustrating about it. Uh, there's lots of surprises, but this movie, I think, starts at that level it starts at the we're going to have lots of plot lines and it's going to be operatic but then it adds so many layers uh that distract from that and again the comedy the Mm -hmm. high science i mean we haven't even talked about the whole core of this movie being about an alternative fuel source that powers the world except in some ways it quantum entanglement connects all people and it drives them crazy but we don't actually see that (laughs) <laughs> but the rock knows it's going to happen yeah and also the end of the world comes and this is actually just a satire book of revelation right so he starts at that nashville level <laughs> and then adds so many things that are so absurd i think it i mean it adds to the comedy for me but it also it's just it's a mind blender you know it's a mind blender i want to argue that it's it's too much it's too much all thrown on top of each other I think at yeah. some point he loses the, the ability to tell this coherent narrative. It works great as a cult movie. It works great as a movie you watch 30 times, but that befuddlement at first watch is a little much. Like even, and even Donnie Darko, mm-hmm. like you can track it as a, as a viewer. This is one of those rare movies that you just have to sit back and let everything watch over you and hope that you're going to make sense of it. Now, I'm not sure that's a negative yeah. or a positive statement. It's just a kind of a neutral statement saying this is the kind of film that Kelly made. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's just it. Uh, you have to kind of crave exactly what you're saying. You have to watch this movie and say, I want to be confused and I want to figure this puzzle out. Because if you don't and you're watching this like you'd watch any other movie, then yeah, it's not going to hit you right. And <laughs> the negative reviews are warranted because if you strap yourself in for a regular movie and you get this, you're going to be disappointed. Um, it, it's not easy to track. It's like, it's like watching just the third season of Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. You know, There's too much to fit into your brain and none of it makes sense, but you want to go back and watch it. If you don't want to go back and watch it, or, or just if you don't want to let it simmer in your mind, it, you're not going to get the same amount of enjoyment. You yeah. might not get any enjoyment. <laughs> you probably get some enjoyment just for the pleasure of seeing all these great actors on screen. It might be so bad it's good for you. <laughs> or that too. Yeah, Kelly's clearly a Lynch fan. Uh, there's <laughs> allusions to a bunch of other movies in here too. Yeah, I loved the way he dolled up uh, Wallace Shawn. And it just reminded me so much of the, the villain from Lost Highway, mm-hmm. Lynch's movie. And again, the the little woman that's always giving creepy little foreshadowing is, is just a perfect red room character from twin peaks and then you know if you didn't pick up on all the little lynches and start the movie at the end he's got uh what a, rebecca del rio singing the national anthem which is that's a scene so pulled haunting. right out of mulholland drive right that's so haunting it's just beautiful yeah and again that was one of the things that i saw and i said 
you know, okay, I'm a big Lynch fan. I've seen Mulholland Drive a million times in, in the same effort to understand it like this movie. And I'm wondering if the director is also an aficionado. And then he just slaps a scene right on the screen for all to see saying, I love Mulholland Drive. I'm just going to put one of their scenes in my movie. And it just made me laugh and smile. Well, he's he's clearly a film geek, right? He went to USC film school. He's of that same kind of Tarantino-esque uh, attitude about classic film. In fact, oh, in, yeah. the, in the commentary, he mentions Tarantino and getting a copy of the script to Pulp Fiction before the movie had been released and loving that. Um, and, you know, he obviously, like the, the film Kiss Me Deadly, which is a wonderful noir classic, has a kind of tangential relationship to the plot, too more more less tangential more kind of sideways uh paralleling it yeah and there i mean you can tell again this guy's in love with all of cinema there's always that old movie playing in the background for some reason on all yeah that that's kiss me deadly that's kiss me deadly yeah um but i which centers around stolen uranium that may destroy los angeles and the attempts to recapture it see again little nuggets you got to dig for that just that just make it bloom uh, but I also love how much cinema seems to love this director because, I mean, how else did this movie get made except that The Rock said yes and that, I mean, he's got Kevin Smith in an acting role because obviously Kevin Smith said, this is wild, count me in. Um, I don't know if you caught it, but I'm pretty sure Eli Roth gets shot on a toilet yes. and it's like a two second scene, but it's like, there's a guy who was clearly just like, this is going to be cool. Put me in for a second. You know, uh-huh. I don't know the story behind it, but you can tell everybody on board was just like, this is going to be a wild movie. I can't, I can't wait to be a part of it. And I can't wait to have fun. You can tell the love of cinema is coming together to make this mad thing happen. That's a great way to put it. It's this mad thing. This <laughs> yes. Crazy, mad, bizarre thing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still sorting out whether I like it or hate it, Chris. Well, I didn't hate it. I absolutely didn't hate it. I'm just still sorting out whether it's one of my favorites or just one that to me is an oddball or tourist trip. See, for me, that's one and the same. If it's an oddball or tourist trip, it's probably one of my favorites. And this one is (laughs) one that you can just dig into. Um, It doesn't help that the director admits that it's unfinished because there's so many things that you think you got a hold on, right? I mean, in, in my favorite scene in the movie, uh, it takes place in, what is it, the Senator's Mansion or whatever. All these characters come together, start accusing each other and thunder strikes. And it's just a scene right out of Clue or something. It's hilarious. Mm-hmm. And during this thing where you're concentrating on, you know, Mandy Moore spouting obscenities, and uh, the senator being confused by the jargon of the day. Justin Timberlake quickly throws in this little, he says, oh, two beasts, a pregnant woman and a dragon will come together for the end of the world. He just says it. I missed that. Yeah, exactly, because there's so much happening. You know, uh, it's like, oh, Mandy Moore is pregnant. Mandy Moore is pregnant with the advisor's child. And you're thinking, wait, didn't The Rock mention that the end of the world was going to come when a baby was born and every time it farted, it caused a nuclear explosion. (laughs) So you're trying to recall this very strange joke and how it relates to the plot. And then the director slips in this little bit of commentary that at the end of the movie, you think, oh, right, Mandy Moore's pregnant. You've got The Rock and Sarah Michelle Gellar on stage. And then in walks Bei Ling, whose name is Serpentine, who Mm -hmm. is the only character in the movie that's actually pulling any strings. And she knows that she's caused the end of the world. And that was foreshadowed in a scene you couldn't possibly be paying attention to. <laughs> wow. It's like levels upon levels upon levels. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I mean, uh, and again, I think the director said this is a satire of the apocalypse and the book of Revelation, which is a strange thing to say, but it makes a little bit of sense. I love how the world ends in this um like the climax did did the did the final scene what did that do for you was it just I, confusion or were you along for the ride i was along for the ride i felt a little euphoric at the end okay okay 
yeah and because, we do get again, fireworks after all well that too yeah uh, <laughs> and i mean big spoilers but the end of the world comes because sean william scott has a, a clone from the future that shares the same soul and when they connect something happens and we don't get to see it that's where the movie ends too but it's amazing how they roll in this weird concept of like okay science has gone too far it created this thing and this thing will happen that will destroy the world but then it's sean william scott sitting in an ice cream truck shaking hands with himself trying not to commit suicide wrestling with memories of being in iraq and you realize like is this scene a hilarious absurd take on the apocalypse or is this about sean william scott trying to forgive himself for his past mistakes he can't let go to himself you know he, he can't commit suicide he can't give up on himself and in some ways that's like so fulfilling for the audience to see this tortured guy be like it's not your fault you know you are me and i am you and we're looking at each other and we forgive ourselves for all these things that happened off screen by the way and just when you have that again euphoric rush of like this movie revelation you realize oh you know if he did let go if he did give up that probably the world wouldn't end you know it's a strange plot line wrapped up in this other strange revelation and it's funny and it's sad and it's weird yeah it's this very fucked up world that <laughs> well then you get to this other metal level like is this all basically it's a dreamlike film. Is this all oh, yeah. a dream? Is this all some sort of hallucination? Is this literally him lying on the battlefield with a bullet through his eye, dreaming about this whole other world that might be around there? Yeah. I mean, because the movie's all shrouded in fog. There's all these scenes of characters taking drugs and the world gets distorted around them too. Like you might imagine okay, if you're taking this drug, but it also could be like your experience on morphine or something. Uh, you know, there's, there's always this touch of lynching again, touch of unreality being right there on the edge of everything you're experiencing. Yeah, and that's, that's something that uh, was a big difference between first and second viewing was the first time you watch it and you watch it like you would maybe a lynch film once you realize you don't understand what's going on, where you think, okay, uh, what's happening on screen? How do I interpret it? You know, maybe the director said like, oh, I'm not going to give away the ending because I really want the audience to interpret it for themselves. You know, a lot of directors do that where they say, I left this open because the truth is whatever you imagined, mm -hmm. right? That, that's a classic auteur film movie. And this movie doesn't do that. It says, look, I've got everything on the screen. If you don't understand it, it's not up to you. It's because it's in a graphic novel I wrote or in a, a script I didn't make. And that's so frustrating, but at the same time, kind of freeing to be like, it's a puzzle I can figure out, you know? It's not up to me. He knows what's going on. Yeah, he knows what's going on. Yeah, well, see, there you go. The graphic novel piece. <laughs> go do it's your homework piece. so you can understand this movie. We'll buy I like that you can understand it without it. Uh, I haven't read the graphic novels though. No, I haven't. And I either. don't know if I want to. I wonder how good they are. <laughs> Let's just say I, I like this movie so much on a on an out of context. Like again, when I'm reading a comic book, I crave like like my thing is I will go to the comic book store and I will pick up a random issue of Claremont's X-Men from the 80s, and it'll be like 234. And you dive into that and there are seven plot lines and you don't know what's going on, but you know all the characters and you like the action and the art's cool and the dialogue's good. And you say, okay, I'm completely out of the loop here, but based on the context clues, I can kind of figure out what's going on and I can really enjoy what I'm seeing on the page. This is, you know, I know all the characters because these actors are essentially playing themselves. I like what's happening on the screen because it's, wild and vivid and boy does it just reek of the style of that 2000s era you know yeah it just, it just oozes it with the text and the music and everything it's just it's right at the core of it and you say like boy i remember that time there's so many things you can enjoy and if you want to enjoy more you know it's there for you if you want to seek it out 
Yeah, I like that. Uh, the graphic novel was pretty well reviewed on Amazon, by the way. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Who I published might, that, anyway? I might just check it out. It was published by Graffiti Designs. Okay, there's three of them, right? They published a combined edition with all three. Okay. Okay. Yeah. See, again, I'm curious to check it out, but I like this movie without the context. I'm afraid with the context, it might just lose some of its charm. Well, yeah. And I think that's a great place for us to kind of wrap it up, which is, I think this movie works as a movie if we take it as it's given to you. Yes. In other words, I think, I feel like trying to uncover these mysteries is going to make them feel a little less interesting. Maybe like watching the, the, the Matrix sequels or the Star Wars prequels <laughs> for that matter, right? I don't need this additional information that's going to flesh out this world. Part of what makes this so fun is being, is starting in the middle, always feeling like you're in media res and then having a, a conclusion that leaves you a feeling of kind of profound ambiguity. Yeah, I, I, I think that is the appeal of this movie. And I, I think, think it's like... It like any writer who creates this large fictional world, he's going to do all this background work to fill out his world. So it makes sense in context. He's just going to give you a small slice of it. Right. So it's like the top five stories of a 25 story tower. Yeah. Right. You don't need to know what's below you. You just need to know you're on those floors and you're going to have these experiences and people are going to come back and forth. It's a strange analogy. I realize it doesn't quite work, but <laughs> To me, I want to be caught up just in in those moments that are on the screen. Yeah, I mean, Richard Kelly starts this movie with nuclear bombs going off in Texas, and then he ends it with the last three days of the world in L.A. There's so much in between that. uh, And I think there's actually been rumblings of like him continuing or franchising or something recently that this story is going to live on again in some way. I don't know how that's going to play out, but I feel like a lot of interest has come up just in this podcast culture and, and internet yeah. videos and stuff. So again, it will be interesting to see if it gets fleshed out, if it'll lose its charm or if it'll become all that more engaging. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't prejudge. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> On the whole, I'm really glad I watched this. And I, I thank you for bringing this to my attention i probably would have never watched it It was definitely not in any way a movie that i expected yeah i watched this purely out of pandemic boredom i didn't know what to expect and it just turned out to be the exact kind of movie i needed at the time and i'm really glad i was able to convince someone to watch it (laughs) thanks for doing the pod chris well thank you jason